0: I have a friend who works in Christian ministry, and this ministry has been limping along for some time, and I recently asked him what's, what's the, he was describing its troubles and trials, and I'm like, what's going on there? Why does this seem to be characteristic in many ways of what's been going on over the last few years? And he said one word, leadership. We've struggled to have good Leadership. I knew about the previous leader of this ministry, he had fallen, disqualified himself a number of years back, and they'd found a replacement, and this replacement just kind of wasn't up for the job, just wasn't terribly confident, and my friend said to me, I'm more convinced than ever before of what a good difference, or what a big difference good leaders make. I have another friend who was high up in the ranks of a company that was once one of the biggest companies in the world, a household name. That company got complacent. The CEO retired. He was replaced by another CEO. The second guy didn't live up to the first guy's success. The company dwindled for another decade. More replacements at top dwindled further my friend watched his own section of the company, the Government Affairs Department, be consumed by constant infighting, backstabbing. Eventually he knew he had to leave. And if I said this company's name, everybody in here who's 21 years or older would have known this company since childhood. Those of you who are under 21 may not have heard of this company. I know of schools that have thrived under good leadership and then wilted under bad leadership. We could all list nations, both sides, that comparison, and so with churches, and so with families. Good leadership matters. A lot, it turns out which is why the Bible tells us leaders will be held to a stricter standard of judgment. Well, for the last three weeks, we have been thinking about three letters in the New Testament written by an older leader to a younger leader. These are called the pastorals because they're written by an older pastor to a younger pastor about how to pastor well. The two weeks ago we got an overview of 1 Timothy, last week we got an overview of 2 Timothy. I was planning on preaching this sermon here on Titus in a couple of weeks, the beginning of March, with things going as they have, being pushed forward. We get to think about these these things three weeks in a row. What does the Lord have for us? What, what, what is the weight of 1 Timothy? That's what we thought about. What is the weight of 2 Timothy? What is the weight of Titus? After all, these were letters. And like any letter, you pick it up and you read the whole thing. And you walk away with an impression of the whole thing. And so that's what we're going to try to do this morning. You'll see that it repeats, the letter of Titus repeats many of the same themes we've been thinking about. 1st and 2nd Timothy. Yet in those sermons I cheated just a tiny bit because I preached them straight to the church. In fact, all 3 of these letters are written to an individual or you might say to the leadership with the churches standing behind, looking over their shoulders, listening themselves learning, okay, what does the Lord intend in our leadership? What do we hold them accountable to? What are we looking for as we seek to affirm and raise up others? And so this morning, that's what I'm going to do a little different than the last two weeks. I'm going to preach the letter of Titus to the elders of Chevrolet Baptist Church. And I'm going to ask you, Chevrolet Baptist Church, to listen in over their shoulder, as I said. Go ahead and turn to the book of Titus. Paul had spent some time on the island of Crete, planting churches in several cities, but then he left Crete and he left his colleague Titus there to make sure these churches were doing what they needed to do. In that sense, the book provides us, you might say, uh, look at the top of page 8 in your bulletin, with Paul's program for a healthy church. I, I wrote out what I think is the point of the letter as a whole. Provides, Paul provides Titus and us with his quote-unquote program for a healthy church, which is establish healthy leadership and solid foundations of right doctrine Right living. And friends, we're actually going to read this letter as a whole. It's shorter than the previous two. I think we can do it. Let me encourage you to have your Bibles open. Read along with me. You're here for the next 45, 50 minutes. You might as well make the best use of this time. And I think reading along with me will help you to do that. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and of an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, and hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promises before promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Two, Titus, a true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father in our Christ Jesus our savior this is why i left you in crete so that you might put in what remained into order okay right there we we have the paul's telling us the the point of the letter paul left titus in crete so that he might put what remained into order address the things i left unfinished he is saying this is why i left you in crete that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer is God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. On servants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything, They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they might adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, To avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves of various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us because of our works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that justified by his grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works these things are excellent and profitable for people but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable, worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after i warning him once and then twice, I have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped, sinful, self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Uh, brother elders, I think I can... Divide this letter into six basic instructions for us. And brothers, I want to do the terribly socially awkward thing right now of asking you to stand up. I'm serious. We're told that one day, brothers, we will give an account to God for the way we elder and lead. And I understand that to be before the assembled heavenly host Let's prepare for that, even now. And congregation, these are the brothers that you're rooting for and praying for. They know there is nothing special about them. They know they will not succeed in leading and shepherding you apart from God's grace. One thing I've learned about leadership living in Washington, D.C. since 1996, is that no one is going to make it. You pin your hopes on this new young Christian senator coming to town. Can't do it. You pin your hopes being around other Christian leaders, as I've had opportunity to be. Oh, maybe this guy, as he leads this institution, he's going to do it. None of us can do it. Not one, except for the one I prayed for earlier. He is the only one who will not fail. Every leader fails. Do not pin your hopes on these brothers, but instead pray for them. It's like we're trying to, as a church, cross over this massive mountain with these cliffs and ravines, and they're the ones we're saying, okay, lead the way. Kind of watching, hoping they make it but we're rooting for them to make it. That should be our heart postures. Thank you, brothers. Number one, appoint good leaders, men who are above reproach and committed to sound doctrine. It struck me that Paul devotes the first third of his letters to discussing these leaders. Appoint good leaders while you silence and rebuke bad would-be leaders. Brothers, One of your primary jobs and tasks at Chevrolet Baptist is to attend to the leadership, and part of your job is raising up other leaders, the right kinds, not the wrong kinds. Our ministry, as elders, should not be about hoarding authority, but looking to give it away and raising up others into it. So I left you in Crete, Titus, that you would put into order what... Wasn't in order. They need more elders. That means it's our job to help raise up other elders. That means, brothers, we are interested in the discipleship and the growth and grace of every man in this church. Not every man will be called or qualified to be a pastor or should feel that burden. The fact that the New Testament calls for churches to have a plurality of elders means that this. Discipleship is structured into the very structures, the fabric of the church. Even as pastors should give themselves to discipling other men into maturity, so the women should follow that same example. It's another reason for the plurality of elders. The men are helping the men grow up into leadership, and the women are doing the same. We'll think more about that in chapter 2. Yet, as I said, brothers, we're working to raise up the right kind of leaders, not the wrong kinds. And Paul tells us what the right kind is in verses 6 to 9. For sort of starters, we, we get this umbrella statement. Look there. Uh, he, he's to be a man who is above reproach. Does that mean it means people can charge him with guilt? But when the facts are known, the charges just don't stick. These men are the same whether people are looking or not looking. And then the rest of the qualifications that you see listed here I think fall into three clumps. What he's like in relation to his family, to himself, and to God. In relation to his family, he is a one-woman man. The text literally says, meaning he's not checking out other women, not flirting with them. Not looking at pornography, certainly no affairs. Uh, he conducts himself in a way that women should feel safe around him, not objectified. Uh, this man's children also respect him, they obey, they don't run wild. You see the word there, believers, his children are believers. Well, that word could also be translated simply as faithful. His children are faithful. And when we compare this text to 1 Timothy 3, it seems that faithful is probably a better translation. His children faithfully obey and honor him. That doesn't mean you never see a temper tantrum in the four-year-old at the church picnic or that you never go through a tough season with the 14-year-old. It does mean that the general pattern of this man's home is kind. Orderly. And brothers, this is what the Lord intends for us. It's also what he intends for any man, for discipling into leadership. Uh, The second clump of qualifications we see there in verses seven and eight in relation to himself, for an overseer as God's steward, notice how quickly he throws in that word steward. The congregation doesn't belong to us, it belong to him. You know how John the Baptist said, may he increase and I decrease. Let, let's let that be the mark of our ministry, our heart's desire. Let him increase even as we decrease. For an overseer's God steward must be above reproach. That He's repeating that. And, and notice how he focuses on appetites, the question of self-control. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. On the one hand, a lack of self control is a young man's temptation. On the other hand, a lack of self control is an aging man's temptation, even if it comes in different guises. I've noticed in myself how easy it is to relax certain areas of my life. I'm not as vigilant as 30 year old seminary attending. Jonathan, it's easy to be preoccupied with the cares of the world. Wife, daughters, established. I can relax a little bit, right? Brothers, let's determine to grow in self-control. And even more self-control today than we knew 20 years ago, 10 years ago, 5 years ago verse 8 presents the positive hospitable a lover of good self-controlled upright holy and disciplined I, i've already mentioned a couple of these but to highlight the one who those i think that seldom get mentioned hospitable and a lover of good hospitable he likes to have people over eat have fellowship or or, or if the season of life precludes those kinds of things with kids and demands of that nature that makes it hard. He, he's looking to make breakfasts or lunches. Chick-fil-A. I'll meet you at Chick-fil-A at 7 a.m. Or, of course, because he's self-controlled, he eats the salad. But it tells us something about our Lord, doesn't it? When you, when you look at the job description for business executives or politicians, it never says hospitable some reason for us to be like our Jesus means sitting down and communing with people and inquiring into their lives, seeing how they're doing, trying to be a model of good works for them, inviting them into that same life, sharing with them as he's given to us. Let let me, let me cover that. Isn't that what Jesus did for us? Even he gave his body and blood for our life. And then this, this this phrase, lover of good. He's, he's not just a no guy, a cranky, get off my line, you teenagers. Get off my lawn, teenagers guy. Instead, I think he's the guy with a smile on his face. He's got a gleam in his eye. He's ready for a laugh. He's a lover of good things. He's not a sour man. He loves the things of God. He loves the good gifts that God gives. When you're with this guy, you might even find yourself swept up into his holy affections. You want the good things that you see him wanting. And then finally, we see a third clump of qualifications for him in relation to the word. At verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine And also to rebuke those who contradict it. He knows the Bible. He studies the Bible so that he can hold to the Bible and speak the Bible. He's a biblical theologian. He's a systematic theologian. Now, as a congregational church, we all sign the same statement of faith. It's not that elders didn't need to know additional doctrine to what the whole church, because the whole church is called to guard that doctrine. That's all of our jobs. But there's a sense in which he can understand and explain and teach that doctrine in a a way that helps the church along in their job of guarding the doctrine as a congregation, guarding the gospel. Jesus would call us to do in places like Galatians 1 and elsewhere. And we're to contradict. That's hard. Contradict and correct those who speak falsely, speak wrong doctrine. Other people, brothers, have different skills. A chef's got to cook. He knows foods and flavors. A businessman knows markets and money. We need to know the Bible and character. We work to become experts on the Bible and experts on character. They're two of our most important skills, for the glory of God and for the good of the congregation. Okay, that's point one for a healthy church. That will be my longest point. Point two, silence and rebuke bad leaders, empty talkers, deceivers, self-interested, hypocrites. You can see the outline again on page eight of your bulletin. It's crucial for us, brothers, to deplatform. Anyone who would draw the church away from a right understanding of the word. Verse 10 refers to these empty talkers and deceivers. Interestingly, he calls them insubordinate. There's a spirit of rebellion. They might try to sound smart, have some questions. Hey, can I challenge this? But really what's going on is insubordination, rebellion. And congregation as a whole, just just stop and think. Was there anything you said that was at risk of upsetting families? Notice, notice the verse: upsetting families going through the last election, or through COVID quarantines, or or mask requirements. Uh, praise God, I didn't see that in this church. But it's something to keep constantly be vigilant against. Are we a little too strident in our views? Now, I recognize these are tough issues. Perhaps more what Paul has in mind in this passage are those who are teaching false doctrines, false rules and commands, myths, conspiracy theories. What's that today? Well, it any theory that would create a false sense of guilt, false promises of prosperity, anything that would distract us from trusting in the finished work of Christ. Fulfilling his command to love God and love one another, which sums up all the law. Just a a quick reflection on giving rebukes, brothers and friends. Immature people don't like to be corrected. We know that. Mature people welcome it. And so as we go to rebuke, we need to be aware of who we're talking to and what what that's going to provoke. It's advice for all of us. And for all of us, I think it's worth being aware that more and more in our culture today, people assume if you make me feel bad or wrong or guilty or uncomfortable or even disagree with something I believe strongly, you've sinned against me. You made me feel bad, you've sinned against me, you've done what is unjust. Teenagers, I especially want you to hear this. The person who cannot be disagreed with, challenged, or corrected, uh, who throws a little temper tantrum, that person is a child. And we live in a childish culture. I am encouraging you not to go off and judge these people in your hearts. Who are they? I'm better than them. I am encouraging you not to let yourself be manipulated by temper tantrums uh, uh, toward a misplaced compassion or a misplaced empathy. When you go into college, when you go into the workplace, you will be surrounded by that. And I'm encouraging you not to be this way yourself by working to make yourself easy to correct. Elders, Offering correction is part of your job, even when people don't like it. If you cannot do this, you should not be an elder. It's part of what we do. Members of the church, you're to follow them in this. It's, it's part of your job as well. Learning to lovingly, gently, benefit of the doubt givingly, not coming in with quick indictments, but asking questions. challenges one another i i could be mistaken but when when i saw this happen it felt like am i understanding rightly i might be misunderstanding offering those loving corrections to one another and brother elders part of the way we can help others receive corrections is being by men who model the ability to receive corrections skip down to chapter 2 verse 7 show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works among the many other things we want to model, brothers, one of them is the good work of receiving correction and instruction. I think I've told you the story. I remember one time when my wife told me, Jonathan, you're defensive. And I said, No, no, I'm not. Let me explain why. And I'm sure I was very persuasive in that moment. Uh, yesterday, even, we had a heated exchange of ideas. My heart did not want to accept her corrections. Something in me said, listen, but I don't want to listen. A couple of my kids who were watching knew that was the thing I needed to do, as one of them lovingly told me later. Right. Brothers, let's model non-defensiveness. Let's be the guys who stand up for the truth and model teachability. Hard to do both. That's what we're called to do, our goal. Well, the third thing we need to do to fulfill Paul's program for a healthy church, number three, teach sound doctrine and sensitively apply it to different kinds of people. Chapter two. Look at verse two of chapter two again. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, earlier he had talked about teaching sound doctrine. Here he's actually not saying teach sound doctrine. He says teach what accords with sound doctrine. And in other words, okay, you're teaching it, but, but but then there's a life that goes on that accords with the sound doctrine. Uh, teach a life that accords with the truth of the gospel and and we see that as he continues to go on he, he goes to different groups of people in the church and lays down instruction for them which which shows us okay okay this is the life for these people these people those people that accords with sound doctrine older men verse 2 it's being sober minded dignified self-controlled sound in faith and love steadfastness that accords with sound doctrine I, I find that men when they get older can be increasingly selfish uh, we don't want to be bothered with other people and so we just kind of pull ourselves into our hobbies and interests i mean how many older men just kind of give themselves to the golf course whatever it is for years no, there's nothing wrong with the golf course but as you get older, are you, you going to bring a younger man along with you to the golf course and use that time to disciple him? What Paul is challenging them to do. He's for them to be self-controlled. Again, that word with their appetites. To be sound in doctrine of the faith. To be others centered in love. O- older women. He addresses them as well. I find that older women history would seem to teach that older women can become cynics and gossips. They give themselves to drink, this verse warns against, because the world has disappointed them. Uh, The women of the church should not be like this. Instead, verses 3 and 4, be reverent, not slanderers, slave to drink, and the older women, too, should be others centered. They're teaching the younger women, it says, the way of godliness. I know a number of you know Eli Schmucker, a number of you know Connie Dever. And how do they exemplify these things? Tessa, I think your mom exemplifies these kinds of things. Example for all the women in the church. Brother elders you are to be teaching the younger women and the older women to be like this so that the older women can give themselves to teaching younger women younger women you've heard of all these titus two ministries you know, every every other church has one it's a wonderful picture ladies what are you aspiring to be as you, as you age are you aspiring to be a woman who, who's looking out for younger women and teaching them the way of godliness? What a glorious picture. And how different is that than the picture we get in all these sitcoms of older women and what they become like? Churches, to be different. We're also to be teaching members, brothers, to be good workers in the workplaces. We see that in verses 9 and 10. Uh, We and our teaching is taking an interest in where people spend the majority of their working week. So, brother elders, what are we doing to disciple and equip people in their work? How much thought are we giving to being good workers? It's a good thing. That should be a part of our instruction. And, And accounting for our own work especially those of us in in non-ministry vocations, drawing from that what the Lord would teach us in that to to help others in their work. Work is unto Christ. That is a part of our job as well. And why do we do this? Verse 10, that the congregation may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. In fact, notice notice in fact how that's a repeated theme. Look at verse 5, that the word of God may not be reviled. Look at verse 8, having nothing evil to say about us. Verse 9, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God. The healthy church, in other words, is one that displays the love and righteousness and glory of God. Our lives are different than the world around us. Other older men and women, other old, young men and Women. I, I'm not finally interested in what our culture says a, a man or a woman should be or like or what they deny. It should. But we're looking to God's word and we're looking to his instruction. We're seeking to be discipled into those pictures. Godly manhood, godly womanhood. Paul's telling us right here what it looks like. And that, ironically, adorns the gospel. The gospel that came in and saved us. The gospel of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for sinners like us. Right? Paying the penalty that we deserve. And rising again into newness of life. Rising again from uh, uh, the dead. Non-Christian, if, if you're here this morning and you don't understand yourself to be a Christian, that is, we believe Jesus got up from the dead. He was in the grave, he got up from the dead. He paid for the sins of his people and then rose from the dead. And then he began to call us into that same resurrection life, that same newness of life. You'd only repent of your sins and trust in him. And everything we're talking about here this morning is what does what is this newness of life look like? And we as a church hope to model that for you. You're going to find some things that we do strange, maybe, maybe at first blush offensive, some of the things I say. But we actually think this is the life that we all were designed to live. Living like this with one another, under the authority of, of people who love God and give themselves to our good. Men aspiring to be these things, women aspiring to these things, children aspiring to be. We were actually designed for this. It's for our flourishing, ultimately. And that's what we're talking about this morning. If you have more questions about what it means to be a Christian, I'd be happy to talk to you more about this. And so finally, church, what does that mean for us? Well, it means we're to be an outpost of the new creation, an embassy of the kingdom of heaven. You've heard me say that before, I trust. A number of months ago, my girls and I walked down Massachusetts Avenue and saw all of the embassies representing different countries of the world. What is the congregation of Chevrolet Baptist to be? It is to be an embassy, flag out front, accent, food, an embassy of the kingdom of heaven. That's what what Paul is equipping the leaders, brothers, and all of us, to be. This is a big deal. These are our instructions for how to do this. And what's what's the basis for these different kinds of life? Verses, look at 11, verses 11 to 15, they provide the answer. We're a people in the gospel. We're grounded in the gospel. And so we, we rehearse the gospel continually. A healthy church regularly rehearses the gospel. That good news I just shared with you about Jesus living as we sh- should have lived and dying the death we should die and then rising again in calling us to himself. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And then notice the connection between verses 11 and 12. This is crucial. The salvation we've received trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. We're to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present consumeristic individualistic, expressivistic, spiritual but not religious, power-hungry age. And we do this, look at verse 13, we do this as we wait for Christ to come. I think it's important to notice, it's throughout this book, and, and notice even here, this relationship between faith and works. Right faith leads to right works, or good works. We're, we're You've heard me say it, we're justified by faith alone, but the faith which justifies is Never alone, right? It shows itself in good works. If there are no good works in your life, if there is not an ongoing repentance, I should concern you. It calls into question whether or not you truly know Christ. Because faith leads to works. And good works are a sign of faith. Faith leads to works works are the outgrowth and prover of and manifestation of faith. We see throughout this letter, the Holy Spirit actually changes us. The Holy Spirit is God. And the Holy Spirit is powerful. And if the Holy Spirit comes into our lives... He doesn't perfect us right away, but he does change our direction so that we're now walking in a new direction, the direction of good works. And so we should examine ourselves, says Paul elsewhere. Are we walking in, walking toward good works? Now I understand some of you in this morning, in the room this morning have very sensitive consciences, and you're always doubting your salvation, am I good enough? There's a sense in which I'm not talking to you right now. There's a sense in which I'm talking to those of you with harder consciences. I I know you because I am you, all right? I'm somebody who doesn't feel guilty very easily. I, I err in that direction. What folk like you and me need is to hear that our salvation is not just a get-out-of-jail-free card, allowing us to live however we want to live. That's not what it is. Look at verse 14. He redeemed us from lawlessness so that we would be zealous for good works. Now, brother elders, for us, that means we're reminding them of the call to good works. We're also modeling good works. Verse 7 again. If the elders aren't modeling good works, why, why would the people? We need to do that. It also means, friends, as a congregation, we practice church discipline. Look back at chapter 1, verse 16 again. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. If Christian lives are supposed to be changed, as I said a moment ago, the member who gives him or herself over to sin, and abides in unrepentant sin. There's nothing to indicate they have changed direction. They're continuing to walk the way they've always walked. We, we, we've come up to them. We've challenged them. We've, we've lovingly called them back. Say, hey, hey, friend, repent. Stop giving yourself over to the old way. And they say, yeah, 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 yeah. And they keep going. Finally, we see the testimony of Scripture saying again and again we're to remove those people from membership in the church. Church discipline is part of how we guard the church's holiness. It's adornment of the gospel that we might be good witnesses. It's it's funny, isn't it? I mean, so many churches are worried about showing the world that we're cool like them or hip like them or fun like them or politically aware like them or morally acceptable to them. In fact... Our witness to the world isn't bound up in showing that we are like them. Our witness as a church is bound up in showing that we are distinct, like salt, bright, like life, light. When a church adopts the world's morality in order to appear more welcoming, the world looks over to that church. They nod appreciatively. They, they say, good for them. And then they never, ever look at that church again. Oh, they're just like me. They got nothing for me. Why would I bother? I've got to get up early on Sunday mornings. They have nothing to add. It's such a short-sighted approach trying to appear welcoming and making yourself utterly irrelevant. Why exist at that point? This relationship between our faith and works, between salvation and good, comes up again in point four. Look at point four. Remind the church continually of their salvation and how this changes their lives. Chapter three, verse one. Uh, the, we're, we're not just to be good workers. We're to be good citizens, Right? And then look at verse 2. Speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy towards all people. Friends, is that what your Twitter and Facebook account was like? Is that how you treat family members? Gentle, not quarrelsome. Extended family members, different opinions than you. Church members, avoid quarreling. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy. And is this how you treat your spouse? Avoid quarreling, being gentle, showing perfect courtesy. Verse 3, we used to be this way, foolish, disobedient, slaves to our passions, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. This is something Christians, I think, often miss about their salvation. Our salvation reconciles us to God, we get that, but our salvation also reconciles us to other people, to one another as Christians. So look at verse 3, we hated one another. Look at verse 4. But when the goodness and kindness of God appeared, he saved us. Saved us from what? Well, from hating one another. Right? Conversion is corporate. Conversion saves us into, it's individual, inescapably individual, but it's also corporate. We're saved into a family. I think I've used this illustration with you before. Mom and dad go to the orphanage. They adopt you. They bring you home. You look around the room. What do you see? You're brothers and sisters. Being united to them unites me to them. We're done with hating each other. We're done with quarreling. We're done with bitterness. We're done with jealousy. Brothers and sisters. That's what we're called to. Don't tell me you love God, says the Apostle John, if you don't love the brothers and sisters. Verse 8, elders, I want you to insist on these things. Brothers, I want you to cultivate a deepening sense of family and togetherness. Simultaneously, point 5, avoid division, remove dividers. People today love to argue, avoid it. Brother, elder, simultaneously contend for the truth, as I said earlier, and be the biggest peacemaker in the church. Help them to be, help the congregation to be. Peacemakers teach good doctrine and avoid fights over theological words. Disciple them to think politically. Avoid political controversies. And church, don't give out time to the arguers, the quarrelers, the brawlers. There are a lot of that this these days. Avoid such folks. In fact, if someone proves to be a habitual divider, arguer, brawler, quarreler in the church, look at verse 10. Warn them her several times, and then remove them. And make no mistake, these people might not be loud. They might appear to be meek. You know, they, they simply offer a raised eyebrow, and they just do that a lot. They're quick to contend wrongly. Brother elders were to contend for the truth We're not to be contentious. And finally, point six, serve the saints not just locally but everywhere. Paul has spent his entire, or has spent his whole time helping the church know what their life together should be like. Yet a Christian church isn't simply interested in their own growth and progress, they care about churches and congregations around the world. We thought about this last week as well. They want to help other churches succeed. Look at verse 12. Paul's sending. Workers to the churches in Crete while Titus is traveling to see Paul. Apparently, the churches in Crete have also received the gospel workers, Zenos, and the preacher, Apollos. They're to supply them with provisions they need to take the gospel work elsewhere. Elders, our job is to care about church planning overseas, called missions. And our job is to help the church care about church planning at home. Maybe sending members or pastors. We're, we're not to be like McDonald's. Trying to get all the customers here. Away from Burger King and Wendy's. Not, we're happy for people to eat wherever. We're going to help others. We, 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 just want them, we just want them to eat somewhere. We're looking to help other churches. We're, we're just one platoon. This congregation is just one platoon in the army. We can't do it ourselves. We want other platoons to be strong. Well, Brother Elders, there it is. Six points. Paul's program for a healthy church. Raise up good leaders. Silence the bad. Help the church understand how sound doctrine, how the gospel changes the different areas of their lives so they're devoted to good works. Avoid the quarrelers and dividers. Work for the good of other churches. That's good leadership in a church. In some ways, it's pretty simple. We're to teach them and word and example to do good works. Which means, congregation, the real action, finally belongs to you. The witness of this church doesn't finally depend on these men. It depends on you. You are the embassy of light. You are the outpost of heaven adorning the gospel for the world looking in. Your lives, brothers and sisters of Chevrolet Baptist Church, individually and corporately, are to display the glory and love Of Christ in heaven will you work to be teachable I know you are and I just encourage you to continue in the way you've been going in that are your hearts soft and hopeful are you guarding your heart against tiredness bitterness cynicism losing zeal or are you continuing to grow in zealousness for good works. You have been. Keep going. Brothers, I am no Paul. Paul left us with this letter for us to continue to put into order what's left remaining, looking forward to the day when we, more and more, will stand before his throne when the books are opened and we hear the stories recounted of all the good he did, brother, through you and Jonathan through you and Luke through you and Ryan through you. We will hear those stories if we remain faithful. And brothers and sisters of the church, they will remain faithful only if the Lord shows grace and they need your prayers for that grace. Will you pray for them? Let's do that now. Lord Jesus, none of us rule like you. None of us lead like you. We need your help. Every elder in here needs your help. Every father in here and mother in here needs your help. Every husband in here needs your help. Every manager in here, every officer in here needs your help because we will stumble and fall apart from your grace in the leadership, stewardships you've given to us. And so we pray in your mercy, Lord, that you would preserve us, preserve those who you have placed over us, where our hearts have grown cynical and hard towards those over us. Give us softness of heart that we might pray for them and ask you to keep them in good standing. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.